What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. A quick message before we go to this week's podcast that we have a very special reward for all our podcast listeners. On Wednesday, 18th of August, Jude Law multi-award winning actor known for his roles in Sherlock Holmes, The Talented Mr. Ripley and The Grand Budapest Hotel, among others, will be joining us for a live recording of the hit podcast, How I Found My Voice. And you can join along for free and ask Jude your questions about his life and career. To do so, just click the link in our episode description or go to intelligencesquared.com slash attend and use the promo code podcast, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at the checkout to get your exclusive free access to our live recording with Jude Law. That's promo code podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T. But now on to this week's episode where we were joined by James Griffiths, who all the way from Hong Kong spoke to Carl Miller about how China built and controls an alternative version of the internet. It's a really fascinating conversation touching on Hong Kong coronavirus and how the Chinese model of controlling the internet is spreading to other parts of the world. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link to pre-order the new version of James's book in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Carmilla. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, James Griffiths author and Asia correspondent for Globe and Mail, and author of The Great Firewall of China, How to Build and Control an Alternative Version of the Internet, which is out now. James, hello. Hello, thanks for having me. Right, James, let's, before we talk about China, let's talk about the internet kind of before China. So, so take us back to those, those heady days when, you know, people like Vint Cerf were imagining what, what that network would look like. What was, what was the original vision? Um, well, as the internet kind of moved from being a first a US military funded operation and then more of a scientific operation and became something closer to what we think of the internet today, facilitating communication around the world, letting people share anything they want, it was this libertarian dream, let's say, of the internet as breaking down borders of letting people say whatever they wanted to whomever they wanted and and in a way that would not only work against government censorship and control, but would be impossible to censor or control, that, that this would just simply defeat any government efforts to do so. And was that, was that all then a kind of deliberate kind of architectural vision which they had? They, they, they knew that this was going to become a, the battleground which it's become. Is that right? And that they kind of wanted to, to kind of build in early defences against it? Certainly, ideologically, the people were very opposed to censorship and, and there was this big kind of free speech 
ethos within Silicon Valley and also in the European areas of development of the internet. Uh, but I wouldn't say from a technical perspective stuff was particularly built in there was just this kind of a, assumption that that in one of the old famous slogans was the internet would root around censorship that that just the nature of the tech that they were building would do this but but they didn't i mean from several generations down the line we can we can see that they didn't actually put anything in place to prevent this from happening but perhaps you could argue that they maybe thought they were okay so we have this early vision of the internet decentralized, a bit chaotic, home of mind. I think you quoted uh, John Perry Barlow, didn't you, in the opening of your book. When did alternative visions that were hostile to that initial conception begin to begin to rise? Yeah, so if as the internet began to evolve in China and, and as it came to be introduced to the country, it, it, it followed a similar pattern to the US. That was, This was mainly a thing that was being used by research institutions, scientists, universities. And, and then following, and it, and it was, the government was paying attention to it in a way, but as, as a piece of new technology, not necessarily as, as a speech threat or as something that they desperately needed control. But then following the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, you kind of see both sides of this debate, people pushing for greater freedoms in China and also the government suddenly recognize the internet as a potential platform outside of government control. Dissidents who had fled overseas started to use email servers and and, and rudimentary bulletin boards to, to get their messages back into China. And then the authorities responded by by very quickly ramping up control over it and building building the kind kind of the first bricks of what we now call the Great Firewall. And and what did those what did that kind of early vision look like then? Like how long did it take for a kind of alternative kind of counter kind of vision of the internet within China to become kind of clear? Oh, not very long. I mean, this this was as pretty much as the internet was becoming a mass consumer product in China, it was also becoming a censored form of communications. It, it, you know, there was never any point where it was available to the majority of people in an uncensored form. Uh, and from a technological perspective, that was very easy for the government to do because the way that, that it had had been built in there was also uh, it was pretty much controlled top down by the government through through various utilities. There were limited access points between the very, very rudimentary Chinese Internet at the time and, and the global Internet. So it was quite easy for them to, to go in and put in controls, put in filters and firewalls and, and start censoring stuff, though, obviously, in the early days, that was a very unsophisticated uh, process that they were using all right well we've 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 um, opened pandora's box you've mentioned filters and firewalls so i guess we're going to have to kind of dip our toe into some of the kind of technical aspects of this just for a second to understand what the firewall really is so so could you kind of take us through then the kind of different kind of composite parts i guess which kind of add up to 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 the chinese vision yeah, I think it's it's better to think of it in a way that this is something that's evolved in a in a cat and mouse game with with people trying to trying to beat the sensors. That as as those efforts have got more sophisticated or, or they've just changed over time, the sensors have had to come up with new ways of preventing them. So in the beginning, the Great Firewall was very similar to a, any firewall that probably pretty much anyone listening will have had some kind of experience with either at an office or at school that, you know, that blocks certain websites. You know, it was essentially a porn filter for a long time in China. And then as it, as the internet started to be used for more political purposes, you start seeing more and more political websites added. 
But then as people started to realize that things were getting blocked and they worked to to get around those blocks by having tons and tons of mirrors of websites, by using proxy servers to get through the original blacklist, then the firewall starts to get more sophisticated. You have this thing called deep packet inspection, which can look not just at the websites and the IP addresses that have been accessed, but also the content of those sites. So it can either flag things for review or potentially if something sets off enough alarms, just block it entirely. And and that's got more and more sophisticated over time and has evolved through a huge amount of investment and work by, by Beijing and also by private Chinese companies or semi-private Chinese companies with artificial intelligence, with reams and reams of, of human programmers looking at things and working out better ways to, to improve block lists and blacklists. And, and it's just become a much more sophisticated thing that can most of the time control and let's say it can control enough of the information enough of the time to make internet and speech on the internet far less of a threat to Beijing. And and adding all these things up together, so, you know, some filters over there and some censorship over there and some deep packet inspection over there. I mean, did this all amount to something which really is kind of a re-engineering of what the internet really is? No, and I think this is what takes us back to the to the idea that that, that these libertarian information wants to be free uh, thinkers of the early stage of the internet didn't you know didn't really put in particularly good protections for for speech you know the short short of the political pressures against doing so in in countries like the UK or the US you, you know you could introduce the Great Firewall in pretty much any any country you know it, it it would be a political decision to do so and, and politics is what would stop it or you know legal protections we have for speech and things like that but technologically it's not too difficult to do you know it takes a lot of investment to do it at the scale that china is doing it certainly but but it's not it's not overly sophisticated so how much kind of resistance then did did china really face as it began to in the kind of post tiananmen era like implement all of these different kinds of forms of control within China. Obviously, not a huge amount of resistance because this is a uh, this is a one party authoritarian state which has a has a number of levers of control against people that try to work against it. Always helpful. Outside of <laughs> outside of the country, you did you did see various groups of of activists of dissidents. The Falun Gong religious movement was a major kind of proponent of of anti-censorship technology for a long time after the Chinese government cracked down on them because they saw this as, you know, a key way to continue to proselytize inside China. You know, in in kind of, say, the last decade or so, it's become more the realm of, of, you know, of of programmers and of of people trying to find a a technological solution to to this, who come at this from maybe more of a pure tech background than a lot of the early people who who were political dissidents who kind of were forced to try and find ways around censorship because otherwise they couldn't get anyone to read what they were saying or hear what they're saying. But, you know, this has always gone up against a a huge party state, which has incredible amount of money and, and resources to throw at this. And also, since the evolution of, of the kind of Chinese commercial internet, and, and we start to see huge social media companies like Weibo, like WeChat, and Baidu as a, as a search engine, you know, since these big internet firms, Chinese internet firms have come up, they also are pressured by the government to invest a huge amount of money in censorship and in controlling what people are saying and in monitoring what people are saying. So you have this 
you know, public-private partnership working against, say, you know, a scattered group of dissidents and activists around the world who have, you know, have fought a very good and long fight against against the censors in Beijing, but it's one that is very, very difficult for them to ever win in the long term. So we'll, 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 let's step away just from our, our rough chronology for a second, because I, I do want to talk about this scattered group, as you call them. So I, I've been to one of the Internet Governance Forum meetings. For anyone listening who has never heard of it, which will probably be almost everybody, it's a, a kind of strange crossroads where you know big tech and activists and and think tank researchers and so on all meet usually once a year in non-coronavirus times to kind of talk about all these issues. Um, one thing that struck me, James, when I went there was that all these discussions around internet regulation and protocols and and blocking and censoring was both so utterly fundamental to the our, our the lives that we live, but also so kind of impenetrable and technical and in a sense boring if you if you will for most people that it 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 was always very very difficult for these things to kind of break out and become kind of popular political topics like is is this something that you think is kind of dogged the world of internet governance the way that it is very difficult to kind of try and translate these things into issues which most people would care about yeah absolutely and you know internet activists have complained about this for a long time that there is a Internet governance as a kind of broad issue is done both kind of through governments uh, interacting with internet companies within their borders, but also obviously internationally and and, and supranationally. And and it's very, very difficult. Like you said, it's complex. It's pretty boring. It's technical. It's not necessarily always easy either to even when there is a real threat to speech coming down from that kind of multinational you know, international level to explain to people how this could affect them, you know, in their personal lives in Europe or in the US or, you know, let alone in, in an authoritarian country. I talk a bit in my book about this this kind of quite prominent fight that's been going on for about two decades now between what is called the uh, multi-stakeholder model and the multilateral model, which you know, the fact that those two words are, are called, how we call them both sides shows how technical and boring this all can be and why it's hard to get people interested in. But multi-stakeholder basically means you have companies and uh, activist groups and NGOs involved, as well as governments. And multilateral means you just have the governments, which is what, you know, your authoritarian countries that are controlling the internet, like China and Russia and other other states would much rather have because it gives them way more leverage and it gives them more standing and and it's often very hard that when you have these internet freedom groups you have anti censorship organizations when they're trying to alert people to to any shift away from the multi stakeholder model for them to sell that to people as something they really need to be concerned about you know think about how hard it is to get people concerned about things that happen at the united nations at the best of times let alone when it's a subsidiary body of the united nations dealing with the technical matters of how we assign IP addresses around the world, you know, this is an incredibly difficult thing to sell people on, even though it's governing technology, which we use every second of our day, and which is hugely important to, to freedom of speech around the world. And we would notice the moment any profound or important change happens to shift the internet away from what we're used to as well, I guess, which is 
So I think I think one one good example I would I would say actually is is especially for for people in Europe listening that that if you think about the GDPR the the European Privacy Bill that, that that a lot of people were not aware of this thing that had been ticking along at a European level for 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 ages before it came into force and suddenly every single website in the world was asking them can I you know can I take your personal information to to keep serving you this website and if you think about that that there are proposals far more negative than GDPR, not to suggest that GDPR is negative, that are being made at at bodies that people are paying even less attention to than the European Parliament or European bodies. And that that the the worst case scenario that the the Internet Freedom Groups will 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 kind of paint out is that one of those proposals gets through a body like the International Telecommunications Union, which is governed by the UN, and suddenly the a lot of the kind of things we take for granted in terms of protecting speech online or, or governing how uh, websites are, are work around the world could could suddenly be very fundamentally changed. China then is is not only implementing a series of kind of technical network level stuff happening on their own board. Are they, are they they're also kind of waging what, what what's the best way of describing it, James? A kind of regulatory war, like. Um, within within the UN and other bodies, yeah, absolutely. So so as the firewall was became very very secure and and you know was was essentially unassailable from within China itself, and and as I think the census realised that a lot of the problem was was coming from overseas, and also you saw this this coincides with China generally engaging more in the, the international community, especially the UN. There has been a concerted effort by China in concert with with Russia and a couple of other countries to reduce protections for speech in global internet governance, to give governments more power to to control all aspects of internet technology and and kind of business within their borders. And and I would say that a lot of this is is mainly about shoring up the firewall and, and giving the censors more powers over the Chinese internet. But the effect it has is undermining protections, maybe not so much in democratic countries that where we would hope that our own governments would 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 give those protections to us anyway but certainly in countries that that are semi-democratic or authoritarian that maybe don't have the same tech in built in already as china but it 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 gives them coverage to to do so in future or or gives them potentially a, a model for following along the chinese path so I think this brings us to to one of the one of the key pivots which you point to, which is this kind of shift from China, both first trying to kind of look within and control the internet within, and now kind of turning its kind of gaze to try and un- understand and control the internet outside of its borders as well. I think that's what, one of the key pivots. So let, let, let's 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 dwell on that for a moment. In a, in a nutshell, how is China? What would be the Chinese vision of our internet now? Like what, what do they want our internet to look like? If it's just us talking to us, they don't care too much. But if, it, if it's anything that impacts China, there, there is a new attention to this and a desire to control this in a way that, that did not exist, say, 15 years ago. That, that, you know, it was once felt that that either the, either there was a sense that this was just not something you could control, say how how people organize against Beijing in Washington or Berlin or, or London, that this wasn't something that that Beijing could try and influence, 
or there was a sense that that it wasn't something that maybe Beijing could, should care about because because ultimately it didn't affect the security situation too much within China itself. And that viewpoint has completely shifted to there is an effort both through. Uh, lobbying uh, of, of various governments around the world, world to kind of take a take a harder line on 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 anti-China operations in them, to pressuring companies to to kind of conform to to what we might call Chinese political correctness, Chinese state-backed hackers going after dissident groups overseas and and, and after governments critical of China, you know. The export of Chinese tech to various allied allied countries, you know, in a way that that kind of improves China's standing in terms of controlling their security situation. Beijing is not satisfied to stand by while the internet is used, or any you know any form of uh, communication is used to malign Beijing or hurt its interests, no matter where the person doing that might be around the world. So that that I, I, for activists and authors, I mean, for for people like you, I guess as well, James, you know, who write a lot about China and 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 its politics, this must be extremely worrying time to kind of see whether China will actually have some success in terms of stifling or or or, or chilling speech outside of its borders. Yeah, and we've we've already seen this. You know, pretty much every year there there is. You know, from very kind of basic levels of academic conferences being pressured to to cancel certain guests or or drop certain topics, the Tibetan exile community in particular, uh, now now increasingly as well, the Uyghur exile community have come under huge pressure from you know being harassed online and also being targeted by hackers and and having their communications spied on, and and that does chill speech because you know it really raises the potential costs of speaking out even when you fled China, let alone for people who are still within Greater China or, or still based in China themselves, you know, it, it really, the hand of the state, the, the, or the sense that the hand of the state can reach anywhere in the world is, is you know, is far more palpable. So you, you've, you've mentioned hackers several times now, state-based hackers. So is, is it, are they part of then this, this kind of Chinese vision or Chinese models? So you've got kind of sensors and filters happening internally but then also this ability to kind of reach out, I guess, as a kind of and, and, and to exert state power via the Internet externally as well. And I guess Chinese influence operations or information warfare would, would come under that banner, too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's really part of that shift from just seeing if you just saw the Great Firewall originally as more of a defensive model and more of a, a domestically focused thing about shoring up. The, the Chinese internet and separating it from the rest of the world and filtering what comes through to it, that now you see from behind that firewall influence operations being launched in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, you know, in, in, in Europe and in, in, in the US, uh, and also concerted hacking of, you know, not only kind of traditional intelligence targets, but also uh also activist groups, dissidents, exiles. And, and, you know, that's something that really has changed. And that's something which really also then, I think it, it then kind of doubles the effectiveness of the firewall itself, because because not only do you block these people from, not only do you block whatever these people has been put out from getting back into China, but also you, you in some instances, manage to stop them from speaking out altogether. If we go back to the early vision of the internet, I know that one of the things that 
its early creators wanted to have happen was the, you know, the emergence of all these communities online, which would have no necessary relationship with any geographic place. And, and I guess like, you know, we, we, we still see that, don't we? We still see online communities that are brought together for, for completely geographic reasons. And perhaps more than any other is Wikipedia and the kind of open knowledge, open source communities, which cluster around it. What is their future in a world where states with the kind of capability and time horizons as China might begin to think you are engaged in an activity which is profoundly unsettling and desecuritizing to us? That's a good question. I, I, I would I would argue that probably Wikipedia is not at too much risk given its size and its and its and the apolitical nature of it and and that it wouldn't i don't think it would necessarily be such a target because this is always already blocked in china and you know wikipedia isn't going out of its way to get past those blocks or to try and undermine them or to lobby against them and stuff you know it, you generally do have to take an extra step to 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 earn that kind of attention but what's i think more pernicious is that this model of the internet that china has is spreading around the world and 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 so that that while wikipedia and other open source communities or other open flows of information may continue to be available in in the us or the uk and various countries similar countries that as more and more nations adopt a Chinese approach to the internet and control it a lot more, they will start to cut off these open platforms themselves because from similar desire to have control and to, to censor what people are able to read. So where is China having that success then, James, in terms of exporting the model? Oh, um, <laughs> all over the place. Most any any authoritarian leaning country that is allied with Beijing has at this point uh, started to buy up tech from from Chinese companies. You know, we've seen in particular parts of Africa. I talk about I talk about uh, Uganda in in my book, which which is a country that has kind of pursued an aggressively anti-internet freedom uh, approach in recent years, blacking out the internet and also um, investing in kind of Chinese uh, filtering tech and surveillance tech. We've seen Russia, which has never been a, a great fan of uh, an open and free internet that's shifted from from its kind of own own take on internet censorship in much more of a Chinese direction. That the, the, the way that they've been approaching it legally, the way they've been approaching it technically, is is far more Chinese in practice, and, and is and is be, is happening with the assistance of, of Chinese um, officials and, and tech companies. And we've also seen a lot of places in Asia. Cambodia introduced a, is in the in the midst of introducing a. Uh, something that is basically a, a Cambodian version of the Great Firewall, Vietnam as well. Uh, and and China is basically re- ready and willing if any country comes to it and says, hey, we want to control our internet. China is happy to provide both the technical uh, expertise and 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 from a legal basis uh, of kind of helping to draft laws which which can which can clamp down on speech online. And, and you know, the, the Vietnamese uh, cybersecurity law is, is you know, almost word for word, that which China passed uh, previously. And uh, is the idea there to basically establish this kind of state-centric control of the internet as a new norm globally? 
Yes, absolutely. And this, this, both this is a, this is a helpful service that, that, that Beijing can provide its allies and it shores up any effort by Beijing at the international level to, to, to promote its vision of the internet because it has a bunch of people that are fully on board with that vision and, and are, will be ready to support it against, uh, the US or the EU or whoever is trying to, is trying to push for a more open one. And I guess this brings us to, to a word which we surprisingly haven't used yet, the splinternet. So, you know, this, this fissure of, of legal and technical distinction between internets reaching such a point where they, they, they might not even in, interoperate anymore. How, is that a future you see, James? Is, is the splinternet happening? Yeah, uh, the splinternet's a bit of a fuzzy term because, because it's very easy to define it in a way that, that says that it's already ha- been happening for, for a long time. Uh, you know, arguably when, since, since at least when Beijing started developing the Great Firewall and, and set a, a big filter between it and the rest of the world, that you already have two versions of the internet. But, but yeah, this is definitely something which is advancing that, that the, you know, the existence of the firewall and the success of the firewall and the success of uh, China's domestic internet, um, not just in terms of censoring information, but also from a, a kind of business standpoint. And, a, you know, there are alternative Chinese services to much of the blocked ones that that really emboldened a lot of countries that I think in the past would have believed that they were too small to censor their own internets or, or, or that, that this was kind of a... Uh, you know, a Faustian bargain they had to make with, with, uh, with, with, to get the benefits of economically of the internet, they kind of had to take the, the maybe speech that they didn't like being spread in their countries. And now they're seeing that there is this alternative model that, that China is advancing and that China will help you achieve. And, and we are going to see more countries move towards that. And maybe on the converse of that, we start to, we might see, uh, democratic countries shift away from it, particularly amid concerns about influence operations and, and hacking and various other cybersecurity concerns. Okay. Well let's let's bring this all together. So, you know, internal control, external influence, state-based hackers, influence operations, exporting models, to try and understand some of the kind of contemporary flashpoints which we're faced with now. So First off, coronavirus. Of course, huge global conversations happening around its cause, consequences, and so on. Have you have you seen the kind of the the Great Firewall and its kind of uh, kind of um, you know other orbiting capabilities kind of being deployed to try and protect China from coronavirus conversations, or, or of course extend uh, its kind of message and influence elsewhere? Absolutely, and, and, and it's useful to think of this in, in kind of two two main stages that 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 both of which have kind of been detrimental to the the, the global conversation, but also also potentially to to even really uh, ex, uh, exacerbating the spread of coronavirus. So in the the very early weeks and months, that as information was starting to come out of Wuhan, that there was a virus being that there was a virus circulating, that as concern was building, that this was something uh, something similar to SARS. As doctors were trying to starting to raise the alarm, they were pretty aggressively censored uh, on the Chinese internet. Chinese state media even reported on on police, you know, cracking down on rumor mongers who actually turned out to have just been sharing completely accurate information from from a medical perspective, and and that. You know that could have caused, could have stopped people from take from, you know, receiving information that might have pre- might have made them act differently. Could have prevented information getting back from Wuhan to Beijing in a clean way that might have made the central government authorities react m- more quickly. A- and so you really see how censorship was detrimental. You know, not just to 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 
political speech or, or to, to, you know, you know, uh, not just anti-government activity, but really, you know, it was detrimental to, to uh, doctors and health workers being able to raise the alarm about a potential epidemic and which became a pandemic. Uh, and, and that will, you know, we'll never really know how that might have played out if when a doctor raised the alarm in Wuhan, he, he could have gone straight to a newspaper and told them and been on the front pages we'll never know what effect that might have had on how the virus developed in and how it spread in the early months of the pandemic. So in the second, so, so obviously this, this, the China's handling of the coronavirus has been greatly criticized and, and the kind of second, the outward bound, let's say version of the firewall or the, or the section of the firewall and, you know, the umbrella internet censorship and, and control in China, we've seen that kick into action when it comes to shaping the narrative globally around, you know, any kind of responsibility people might believe China has for how, how the pandemic developed, for pushing, very, very aggressively pushing conspiracy theories about U.S. Uh, biochemical lab for sharing disinformation about vaccines for a long time, which we saw happening through state media, through state-controlled outlets. And, and so you see how the, the, the kind of propaganda side of this has also damaged the, the conversation around coronavirus, as well as the censorship side damaged our original knowledge of it within China itself. So James, th- that was coronavirus. And I guess in Hong Kong, we've we've got something a bit different, which is uh, perhaps you know uh, this, this this city which suddenly is moving from the external internet to the chinese internet yeah absolutely and 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 this has happened incredibly quickly uh, you, you know i think that my book first came out in 2019 and i think if you'd asked me at the time was hong kong in imminent danger of of, of kind of going under the under the great firewall i'd i'd have i'd have confidently said no and and said this was still years off if not even potentially decades off and yet since the passage in in 2020 of the national security law in hong kong which has had a huge effect on on people's ability to speak freely here on 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 political groups active in the in the city it, it is not out of the bounds of possibility that that we will see far far more censorship of of websites online here you know it's still something of a transitional phase because a lot of the a lot of the organizations and a lot of the speech being cracked down upon is happening within Hong Kong. But as that happens and as more and more people flee overseas and you start to see the the kind of center of conversation around Hong Kong political activism become moved to the diaspora as, as we saw with 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 kind of Uyghurs, with Tibetans in the past, I think I think it's much more foreseeable that the government will start to find it wants to block certain websites or it wants to block certain services. And you know that's something that happens very quickly because once you block something you then have to decide, well, do I want to block every way that people use to get around this as well? And you suddenly find yourself with a very long list of things to block, and then you need to improve your technological capabilities to do so. And you very quickly get to the point where you need a system like the Great Firewall to do that. James, final question. For all the people listening to this, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that this discussion has both felt very close and very far away at the same time. You know, close in the sense that we're talking about technologies that people are literally using at the moment to listen to this. Very far away in that we've also been talking about raging regulatory wars within the ITU and the optic fibre cable based blockers. And, you know, as we said, as we were talking about in the middle, you know, the, 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 all these like rumbling 
competitions over power really happening in ways which are very very obscure and highly technical in in many ways and and very difficult for for just you know um, mass political mobilization or even consciousness i suppose is is there anything that well, what what can people do what what can people do to kind of draw themselves a little closer to to discussions about internet regulation or discussions about protocols or discussions about censorship laws to kind of try and make this just just a little less foreign as a as an issue and as an issue i guess an issue set in the years ahead as it inevitably heats up yeah i think people you know people should be advised to to, to pay more attention to this stuff that 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 they that when we have conversations around encryption when we have conversations around internet freedom and and people's ability to say things online or you know even when it comes to things like extremist content or 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 very negative content being shared online that that people need to pay attention to that because that's where you get this kind of slippage into governments taking greater controls into security services taking you know increasing their abilities to, to surveil people and uh, you know and, and essentially if if you see the the great firewall as a kind of lodestar for authoritarian leaning governments to, to as a as a model to build their internet on you know the the kind of counter to that would be for democratic governments and, and for free societies to, to build an ideal version of the internet which you know is not only free of censorship but at, at you know, actively increases people's freedom online. So, so not only from governments' controls and surveillance, but also private industry from from corporations snooping on what we do. And, and you know, it is one of those things that you you know you you can build. Not to sound hippy dippy, but you can build a better version of the internet at, at home, and that could affect that could spread in a way that this negative version of the internet is being spread by China. Well, James, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you. That was a great discussion on on genuinely one of the most important topics I think currently faces us in 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 the world of technology. Um, the book uh, again, uh, which I, I genuinely urge people listening to this to take a look at, is the Great Firewall of China. Uh, I've been Carmilla, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.